Uh, I want you to imagine something with me for just a moment. Imagine that there is a great, terrible storm headed in our direction, and we all have to evacuate. No exceptions. Mandatory. We've got to pack our loved ones up in the car and leave, not knowing if we'll ever see our stuff, our homes, again. It's kind of a scary thought. It does happen. Not so much in central Mississippi, but our friends uh, east and south of us experience this from time to time. But you've got to pack everything up and go, and this is all you get. Besides those, besides those who are, uh, you can pack in the car, your kids, your dog, or whatever it may be, you get one of these, and that's it. What are you going to put in here? What's going to go in the box? Let me think about that. Wedding album, baby pictures, birth certificates, jewelry, cowbell maybe. It's kind of a week-by-week -week decision as to whether I want to take the cowbell with me. I don't know. Um, whatever you might decide to keep, your focus, your values have to get really narrow, don't they? I mean, if it, what really matters to us if everything else is going to get wiped away? Because, see, in that case, it's not a matter. It's not simply a matter of, well, what do we have that costs the most money? No, the question is, what do we value most? And that's a different conversation, isn't it? And in a way, following Jesus is kind of like that. I mean, if we think about that, to follow Jesus is to constantly be confronted with what really matters to us. What do we really value? Uh, we've seen this as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been walking through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Jesus didn't show up with a new and improved religious checklist for us. Jesus showed up, and when he began to speak, we see it over and over again. Jesus gets into the heart. He wasn't concerned merely with our external behaviors. In fact, external behavior often got in the way of what Jesus was trying to communicate to us. He wanted to get to the heart of the matter, the heart of the issue. He wanted to come after us in terms of what we value because Jesus was insistent always that our highest value should be him. It should be God. And so here's the thing. If, if Jesus cares more about your heart than he does about the externals, that means he's not afraid to come after what you care about, what you value. And I don't know that there's, there's a whole lot, there's not a lot of better scriptures that illustrate this than, than ours today from Matthew chapter 6. That Jesus, without reservation, without any trepidation, he just comes after what we value, and he makes it very clear that there is a line in the sand. Look at verse 19 again with me, Matthew 6. Jesus is talking to his disciples, to us. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, what he's saying right there is, do not place your hope or your security in any temporary thing. Don't build your life on the accumulation of things that are destined to perish. Anything that moth or rust can destroy. Anything that a thief could break in or steal. Jesus says you can't build your life on those things. You can't find your sense of self in those things. That's what it means to store it up. See, Jesus is not, he's not condemning possessions here as if having anything is somehow wrong. 
No, what he's talking about is, a really, again, it's an issue of the heart. When you store those things up, what you're saying is, I'm counting on this thing rather than counting on God. I'm building my life on this rather than on him. That's the issue here. He, Jesus says, don't store those things up. Um, let, me, let me give you the example that Jesus has, I think, most primarily in mind here is, is money. He doesn't mean only money. Sometimes we apply it only to money here. We'll talk about some other things as well. But money's kind of in view, and so here's, let, me, let me just kind of give you an idea of what he means. When we think about our bank accounts, our savings accounts, our, our investments, things like that, right? Those can be, those by themselves are good things. They're not necessarily bad things. There's nothing inherently evil about having money, right? They're gifts from God, in fact. But when I, when I look to money as my security, not just possessing it, but when it becomes my security, when I look to it for my satisfaction, when I, when I use money for my own comforts without consideration for the good and the needs of others, see, then all of a sudden I'm storing it up. I'm, I'm finding my hope in it. I'm building my life on it. And that's when, that's when it's, it's less a matter of me possessing it, but now it's starting to possess me. Does that make sense? Because I've, I'm, I'm putting my heart into the issue rather than simply using it as a good gift of God. Now, even if nobody ever breaks in and steals my money, right? Well, I'll, I'll just keep it safe, right? Well, even if it never gets stolen, Jesus says, I've stored it up in this life only, on this earth only. It's a treasure only on earth. It does me no good in future days. We, 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 sometimes you'll hear that joke, you know, about you've never seen a, a hearse with a U-Haul hitched up behind it because we can't take anything with us, truly, from dust we came to dust we return, right? That's true. But see, Jesus means more than that. It's not just, okay, well, you know, I shouldn't put too much into it because I can't take it with me. Jesus actually wants us to know it will do us harm here. This is not just a one day in heaven, it won't matter kind of question. This is right now where we stand if we build our lives on anything other than God, it causes us great harm today, not just the future. There's, there's really a, a great parable that Jesus told to illustrate this point. You don't need to turn there because we'll put it on the screen. It's in Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, Jesus gives, this is a, it's a story, it's a, it's a fiction, it's a parable, but it gives us such a wonderful picture of the difference here and why it matters. Uh, I'm going to read this for us, at least in part. Uh, this is from Luke 16, 19. Jesus speaks to us. He says, there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. He was an LSU fan. That was his first problem. <clears throat> he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. 
we'll, we'll come back to the rest of the parable later, okay? But what we have right here in this story, we've got two men. And the interesting thing about this parable, this is the only parable Jesus ever told where he used a proper name. The poor man is named Lazarus. It's the only time Jesus ever did that. Well, and we think about it in this case, well, the rich man should have a name too, but he doesn't. The rich man is nameless. And uh, the commentators all think that that's intentional on Jesus' part, that that was not somehow a a slip in his mind that he gave a name to one but not the other. See, clearly, we look at this rich man. This is a man who built his entire life on his wealth, on splendor, on excess. He gave no thought to others. He gave no thought to poor Lazarus, who was right outside of his gate in need. And in the end, when both men die, poor Lazarus is being comforted in heaven, and the rich man is in agony. And Tim Keller makes this point, that this rich man had built his entire life on things, and yet in the afterlife, all his things are stripped away, and there's no him left. And he spends eternity, as it were, without a name. See, Jesus, when Jesus says... Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He's not just concerned with us being frivolous with our stuff. He's concerned with your soul. This is a deeper issue than just stuff, than just the externals, right? Jesus is concerned with your very life. Jesus said it. If you build your life on any temporary thing, you forfeit your soul in the process. What, What does it profit a man if he gains the entire world and yet loses or forfeits himself? his soul. You lose your name in a sense. You lose what matters most when you build your life on anything other than God. That's why Jesus gives the alternative. Don't do this. Instead, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The, the idea behind that is this, that, that when we become Christians, listen, You are a Christian by pure grace. You have not earned your way in this room. You can't earn your way into heaven. There's no accounting system in heaven that says that once we've reached a certain number of good religious works, then God's going to let us in. That's that's not how it works. It's all a gift of Christ, okay? By faith, entirely. But let's be clear on what Jesus is saying here, that when, when you devote yourself to God, when you obey him from the heart, when you live on this earth, for his glory and not your own, there is a treasure being stored up for you in heaven. It doesn't somehow escape God's notice when we live in a devoted way to him. And it should be obvious, I think, right here that that heavenly treasure is not the same as earthly treasure. That what what Jesus is saying is here is, is, you know, do good, do right, and you'll end up with the biggest house up there. Okay, just trust me on this. Right? We don't measure things the same way on earth as we do in heaven. You know, they have asphalt in heaven. It's called gold, right? The streets are made of gold. It's a different value system up there than it is here. Okay, when, when Jesus says you're storing up treasure in heaven, understand that how we live in this life matters, but that also the accounting system in heaven is different. So listen, we love and obey God for God's sake, not for ours. There may be this temptation for me to say, okay, earthly treasure doesn't matter, but if I really love God, then I'll, I'll make bank eventually, you know. No, see, that's still self-centered. I'm not loving him for him. I'm still loving him for me and for what I might get. 
But what Jesus is saying is here, if when we, to store up treasures in heaven is to so fixate ourselves on God and his glory, to love him in response to just who he is, that what, what we have ultimately is treasure in heaven, and our ultimate treasure in heaven is him. It's Christ. Y'all, read, if you read through the book of Revelation, we see this very clearly. The fixation of all of heaven is Jesus forever. And he is abundantly more beyond what we could ever hope or imagine or need. Okay, we're not going to miss out on anything eternally by focusing on him. It will just be, in my, in my opinion, it will be an, a constantly unfolding glory and joy forever. It'll never get old. Okay? He is the ultimate treasure in heaven. And so the idea here is when we live with a single-minded devotion for God in this earth, Right? We're storing up more and more in heaven of the fullness of his grace and glory for eternity. Okay? Now, in all of that talk about eternal things, wonderful as they are, Jesus comes back with an extremely practical truth. Do you see it? He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure in this life is, your heart's going to follow. What, what we ultimately value is going to direct our affections, our allegiances, and even our worship. I'm going to say it again. What you and I, what we ultimately value, is going to direct our affections, our allegiances, and our worship. Uh, Your life will constantly drift in the direction of what matters most to you. We all know it's true. It always does. There's, there's There's no variation in this. There's no way to divide it out and manage it to have equal and opposing values, one here, one there, and I'll just give 50-50. Jesus says it won't happen. Your heart always follows after your treasure. Now, Jesus makes this point in a little bit more of a confusing way right here in verse 22. You may have read verse 22 and thought, what does he mean here when he says the eye is the lamp of the body? Uh, So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. What does that mean? And then if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Um, this, is a, this is a very Hebrew, a very ancient Hebrew way of speaking right here. It's not what we really talk about as much. We might, you know, the eyes are the window to the soul. You may have heard that before. But the idea here, when Jesus says, we're talking about the eye. The eye is, this, is the place of desire. What you fix your eye on, your heart begins to want to desire, Right? And so what, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying what you set your desire on is the issue here. That's the I, okay? And so it's a complementary idea to what we just read. Where your treasure is, your heart will follow. What your eye fixes itself on, your life will be uh, a reflection of, okay? And so he says, if your eye is clear, then your whole body will be full of light, okay? Uh, clear does not mean transparent. That's what it means to us, but not here. When Jesus says your eye is clear, what he means is your eye is focused. Uh, In the old King James Bible, it says if your eye is single, and that's actually a really good translation. If your eye is single, if you have a a one-track mind, a a one central fixation of your life, Jesus says your body will be full of light. Um, Your motivations and your actions will change in terms of the purity of your motivation. You're going to start living for God. You can't help it because, listen, you fixated your life on him. And remember, where your treasure is, your heart will follow. And so life becomes now a reflection of Christ. That's why Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. 
No one would light a lamp and then put a bowl over the top of it. That would be foolishness. Instead, you set it up top so it gives light to everyone, right? That's how we're meant to be. And so Jesus says, if you've got a single eye in that regard, then your whole life will be a reflection of this light of Christ. But then the alternative is also true, right? If your eye is dark, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If your eye is bad, and of course the idea here is if, if a single eye is pure, then a bad eye is, is double or multiple. If I've got divided treasures, if I've got multiple things in addition to God, God's in there somewhere, but he's not ultimate. He's not my fixation. If I've got divided interests, a divided heart, Jesus says, there's no light any longer in me. Or if there is light in me, it's actually so squandered and so squashed out that it makes it worse than if it was never there to begin with. How great is the darkness, he says with an exclamation point. If you've ever had a, a, a lamp or a candle that got a lot of soot on the glass, you can light that lamp, that candle, but it doesn't really do any good, right? Because the glass is not clear. Jesus says this is what it's like to have a life where God is simply in the mix, but he's not ultimate. There may be a light in you, perhaps, but it's so faint that it's darkened out and you cannot now live in the world with any uh, effectiveness, right? If you are a Christian, no one would ever know because your motives are divided. Y'all, no matter how religious we try to be, no matter how, how much we come to church, no matter how much we read our Bible or how much lip service we pay to God, the truth is right here, Jesus says, if God is not your treasure, if he's not your heart's treasure, then none of that other stuff has any uh, effectiveness. None of that other stuff really ultimately matters, no matter how externally good we look, it comes down ultimately to a, to a place of, do I treasure him in my heart? If the light that is in you is darkness, meaning if I say I'm a Christian, but, but God is not my treasure, Jesus says, how great is the darkness? That, that's a concerning statement right there. All right? He's saying you can't give lip service. It doesn't work. Your eye is bad. And... Okay? Um, that, that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it's, what's so interesting about that parable, <clears throat> I just read it for us. You notice that the rich man never asks to get out of hell. He's in agony, but the only thing he actually asks for initially is, send Lazarus down here to me. He's trying to get Lazarus in hell with him, right? Because I need some relief, get, you know, cool off my tongue with a, with a, with a drop of water, he still sees Lazarus as beneath him, as his servant. Listen, his eye is bad. Even in Hades, even in agony, the rich man still can't see what's wrong with him. He's blind, right? He's built his life on anything other than God, and now when everything else is stripped away, he still, he still doesn't get it, right? And, and I say that to, 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 not to scare us, but to encourage us in this. This is a threat to any, the rich man in the parable was not an atheist. In, in Jesus' mind, that he would have been a Jew who went to synagogue and who prayed the prayers, right? That it's possible for a person to be religious and externally good and yet somehow miss it entirely. The, the parable and, and the, the, the Sermon on the Mount that we're reading today, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's not talking to the bad people out there. He's talking to the bad people in here, starting with me. He's talking to my sinful heart and my temptation to, to, to live with a bad eye and a darkened body all the while paying lip service to him. 
that, that we, if we're Christians in external standards only, and yet we still build our lives on something other than God, Jesus says, then we're really missing it altogether. We're, we're committing our lives to temporary treasures. And even if they are good things, they're not ultimate things. We can't manage God in the mix. It doesn't work. So, so what does this kind of come down to for Jesus? Jesus, sometimes he mixes metaphors, you know, from one sentence to the next. We see this today. He's talking about treasure, then he's talking about the eye and lamps. And now he does it again. And the way he finishes this, this little paragraph that we're looking at today is interesting. I said a minute ago, if you heard me, that what we possess can sometimes turn around and begin to possess us, right? Well, I didn't make that up. Jesus says that. And if you, if you notice in verse 24 how he ends this, Jesus is not talking anymore about what we own. He's talking about what owns us. He's talking about what we serve. That's what it comes down to. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, God and any material or temporary thing. <clears throat> when I, when I tend, when I, 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 I get to this place fairly often where I think I'm in control of my life. I don't know if that happens to you. It usually doesn't last very long, but I, you know, especially if things are going well, if things are going easily out, you know, I'll start to think that I'm in control, okay? And certainly I'm in control of all these temporary things that Jesus is talking about, whether it be money or a relationship or, you know, or anything, right? Jesus turns the tables on us, though, right here, and on me. He says, listen, you are servant to a master. You're not in control. The question is, who are you serving? Who is your master? Okay? That's the question. I'm going to give you two quick examples here we've, uh, that are very different. Two quick examples. One is, we've been talking about money. I'm going to come back to money. Jesus has it in mind here. You can't serve both God and wealth. Think about this. Just, I'm just going to be logical here. Right? When we talk about money, right? we've already established that money by itself is not inherently bad, that it is, in fact, a good gift from God. God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, Paul said to Timothy. Okay, So we understand that. But what happens when you devote yourself to money? Because that's the issue here. When you devote your life to making, saving, spending money, not wise stewardship, Okay, I'm talking about you find your hope and your security in it. What happens? Most of us know what happens in that case because we've done it, right? You start getting really anxious about it, really anxious. You worry. Uh, you, you, you might even become paranoid. You're constantly, every day, all the time, checking your accounts, checking the markets, right? I know because I've done it. You become more tight-fisted. You become less generous because now you're afraid of losing what you have, or now you begin to think that the standard is changing, and I can't stay where I am because the standard's changing, and I've got to get up to the next level. You know, depending on who you ask, real quick aside here, um, if you ask a person who makes $25,000 a year, what would it take for you to really live out the American dream? They'll tell you about $50,000. they are going to tell you double. What happens if you ask somebody who makes 100000 a year? How are you going to live out the American dream? What are they going to tell you? 200000 right? Because that's human nature. What we have may be good, but it's not enough. Not to really be something and to really have the security that I need, right? That's, that's what we are. That's the human heart. And so what we tend to do, we get more tight-fisted, we get less generous, we might start working more, start working harder, take a job that we don't really want because it offers a better salary, 
sacrifice relationships along the way if we have to. Uh, We start spending impulsively, spending frivolously, perhaps, if we don't have much control over ourselves. What's happening in that case? Money is not something I'm managing anymore. It's something that I'm serving. I'm not a wise steward anymore. I'm I'm controlled by it. I'm enslaved by it. And y'all, it doesn't matter if you have a little or a lot in that case. It's a matter of the heart. You say, well, I'm not rich, so this isn't a problem for me. No. It's a problem for anybody. If we incline our heart to it, we'll worry about what we don't have, not about what we do have that we're afraid of losing. It doesn't matter how much you have. What matters is the heart, and the heart is prone to this. The Apostle Paul said it. He said, listen, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. For many, he's talking about Christians, for many, after longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. He didn't say money is evil. He says the love of money is a root of evil. And those who long for it walk away from God and end up in ruin. Let me give you another example. Very different. Uh, Our kids. So what what, what what am I talking about? Uh, A lot of us are parents. If you're a parent of a child... All of us as parents, I can say this with, with uh, no hesitation, we all want what's best for our kids. All of us. I know you do, just like I do. But what happens when we make our kids our whole reason for living? What happens when, when their happiness and their success become an idol for us, something that we have to have, that they have to have, that we have to provide for them? You know what happens? You're not serving your kids anymore. You think you are, but you're not. You're serving some fictitious ideal, some, some other master, and you're using your kids as the experiment, okay? And we all, all of us can do this. That what happens when, when my kids are my fixation, I love them, but I actually come up with stupid goals for them. I love them and I want what's best for them, but the truth is, in the end, I end up smothering them and pressuring them, and I will crush them under the weight of some false expectation that I provide because I just want what's best, No, see, the Bible says that we as parents, we are stewards of our children to raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and then to send them out into the world like arrows. That's our job. And yet if I make my children my focus, my reason for living, I'll end up holding on so tightly to them that I'll squeeze the life out of them. And some of y'all know that's true. Some of us are, are teetering on the edge of that as parents even now. Your kids can't be your treasure, as precious as they are. They will suffer, and so will we if we make them that. Uh, and you, you know, put, put anything in the blank here. Money, relationships, any, anything that ultimately is not the glory of Christ for all eternity, if we fix our eye, if we fix our heart, if we find our treasure in that place, Jesus says that becomes your master and you will be its servant forever. You will not manage these things. There's no such thing. Your heart will deviate and you will serve it. And if it comes down to, ultimately, if it comes down to this treasure and God, Jesus says, you will choose it. You will. That's the human heart. Um, So so what do we do about this? I mean, I'm giving us a lot of bad news here. What do we do? What's the solution? Uh, Can I tell you how the parable ends in Luke 16? It's one of these great parables. I love it because it ends so anticlimactically. We don't really know how it ends. Let me just tell you what happens. The rich man, remember where he is? He's crying out to Abraham. If you won't send Lazarus down to me, he says, then please send him back 
to my brothers. Because I've got brothers who are still alive. Send Lazarus back to warn them about this place so they won't end up here too. Seems kind of noble, doesn't it? And Abraham says, they've got a Bible. They can read it. And then the rich man says, no, 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 no. But if someone returns from the dead, then they would repent. And Abraham says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, then neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And that's the end. Um, What would Moses and the prophets have told those brothers that would have been more powerful, more persuasive than Lazarus coming back from the dead? That's the question, right? Doesn't one seem more obviously um, persuasive than the other? Abraham doesn't think so. Why not? Well, let me tell you what the Scripture told those brothers. The The same thing the Scripture tells us and why it matters to us. The Scripture teaches us, Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, just the Old Testament, teaches us something very clear about God and about us. That we, you and I, we are God's treasured creation. That God made us in love, that he bestowed upon us his image. We are image bearers of God himself. But rather than treasuring him in return, we human beings, we treasured anything and everything other than him. Anything that we might be able to substitute for God, that we might be able to put in his place. And in the end, the outcome for us was spiritual poverty, spiritual death. The good things that we were just so sure sin would give us ended up enslaving us and made us a people completely impoverished, so far from God that nothing we do could make up the difference. It's a very hopeless message until we get to the hopeful part, until we get to the good news. And here's the good news. You think about the parable Jesus gives. Someone has risen from the dead. Moses says, well, if Lazarus comes back, that won't do any good. Ultimately, it won't change their hearts. It'll scare them, but it won't change their hearts. But y'all, someone has risen from the dead. Not, Not a fictional person in a parable, but a real person in real space and time. Jesus Christ came to earth died on a cross, and rose from the dead. And listen to what the Bible says about that act of sacrifice, his death and his resurrection. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to hear this. This is one of my very favorite scriptures that talks about what Jesus accomplished for us. It says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now that's dense right there. I'll say it again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What grace? What gift? What salvation? That though he was rich, yet he became poor for your sake, so that you, through his poverty, you might become rich. Listen, Jesus so treasured us, even when we were at our very worst, when there was nothing good about you, not even good potential when he looked at me. He treasured us nonetheless so much that he was willing to forsake his heavenly riches, his place in glory, to become a man and carry a cross. The cross that he did not earn, he had no sin. It was our cross that he carried. And because he went down to the very bottom for us, Paul calls it poverty, because he went down to the very bottom to take on our sin, we now become rich in him. 
that we have treasures untold by faith. Ephesians 1 says we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Both now and for all eternity, we've been made rich beyond our wildest dreams. We owed a sin debt that we could never repay. In our spiritual poverty, we had no resources. And so Jesus Christ came down to us. And listen, God not only cancels the debt of our sin, but he also gives us his son that we might know him and follow him and treasure him all the days of our life. The only way your heart, my heart is going to change is if our treasure changes. That Jesus said it. The only way the human heart changes is if our treasure changes. And the only way Jesus is going to become your ultimate treasure is that you, we, we have to truly see him for who he is and what he did. Not as a religious slice of the pie of life that we try to manage and do our best with. That's not Jesus. That when we see him for who he is, when we see him for what he did, we realize we, he's not something to be managed. He's not a butler to be called on when I'm in need. He is the God of the universe who gave his life for me that he might make me rich in him. You can't add him in to your life. He won't do it. Jesus, I think, makes it very clear here. It's ultimately, at the end of the day, it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. You will not serve both. And when we, here's the thing. If God somewhere far off, some ambiguous, unknown God, gives us a word like this, we might argue back and say, well, I don't know anything about you. I don't know if you have my best interests in mind. I don't know, you know. You're just asking for blind allegiance. That's not the Christian God. The Christian God who came to us in flesh and blood, who died for us, who was raised for us that we might be rich in him, that we might know him. Until we truly see Christ in this way, um, we're always going to be trying to add him in. I mean, I just believe that. It's always going to be, yes, Jesus, plus something. And y'all, I just say this bluntly because I need to hear it. If it's Jesus plus something, whatever that something is, no matter how good it is, no matter if it's your children or your spouse or any other good thing, if it's Jesus plus that other thing, ultimately we're not going to love and treasure Jesus. We're just going to use him. Because that ultimate thing is really what I'm giving my life to. I'm only going to pray and seek Jesus when that thing is at risk, when that thing is being threatened. Because that holds the higher place in my heart. That's why this matter of the heart, that's why this matter of our treasure is so vital. Because Jesus says you can't manage it. It's got to be an eye that is fixed on him. And so, y'all, my, my prayer is this, for me, for us. This is one of those things, remember, I say this almost every week, you're not going to grit your teeth and make this better. This is an issue of treasure, okay? This is an issue of treasure, not, not, not purely effort. Okay? There are things we can do to treasure Christ, of course. Read his word, be with his people, and on and on, right? But ultimately, the treasure of the heart is something you've got to see. It's something that you've got to know. It's someone that we come to know. And so my heart is this, that as we are, in, are confronted with what we really value, that we would approach it with a single eye, with some seriousness here, like the Apostle Paul. 
The Apostle Paul said about himself, this is from Philippians 3, I count all things in this world to be rubbish in view because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He didn't say all things in this world were bad, but he said they don't compare to what I found in Christ. And may that be true of us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I need this desperately this morning. I, I, Father, I, I'm, I'm a mess of, of mixed motives and desires. There are so many things that I'm tempted to treasure. And Lord, I trust that that's true for all of us and that we, we're, we justify them very easily. Um, and if, especially if they're good things, we justify them very easily. But Father, show us this, that, that, that you're, you, you didn't come to take all our stuff away. You're not, you're not, you didn't come to make us miserable. You came to give us life by fixing our eyes, our hearts, our treasure on you. The way it was always meant to be, that in the fall we ruined it. Um, that we've always, we've, we've sought anything, anything other than you to give our hearts to. And yet here we see in Christ a, a God willing to come down to us, to condescend, that you might bring us life and change our hearts. And Father, I pray that as we look at the gospel this morning, that we would not have this scale in our heart to say, well, how, how, how do these things weigh out? How, does these, how do these things compare? But that we would be so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed, knowing that we are sinners, knowing how needy we truly are, that we would see what you furnished for us in Jesus Christ. And that the, the surpassing value of Jesus would, would squash any competition that exists within me and us. And Lord, I pray this sincerely, that, that if we would come to that place, we would find this, that we are better managers of money, that we're better parents, that we're better spouses, that these other things that, that we could treasure actually fall into proper place in our lives and, and become a joy and not a, a place of anxiety or fear for us because they're rightly ordered. Would you show us that? that? That this is not just an eternal perspective, Lord, but this is, this is real life here and now. We're meant to treasure you today with all we have. Lord, show us that there is, it's not just right and good, it's joyful. It's precious. When our eyes are single, when we serve a master who uh, does not demand from us more and more, but who gave his life for us. Let, the, let, let this truth change our hearts. We need it. Our world needs to see it in us. And so we pray it, uh, we beg for it in Christ's name. Amen.